I see lobsters through many different lenses, and it's really been exciting to work with this beast. Being a scuba diver and being able to be down in its world and look at the world from its own terms has been really exciting over my career. That's Rick Wally, a research professor and director of UMaine's Lobster Institute, talking about the creature that has been the subject of his work for more than three decades. I'm Ron Lisnett, and this is the Maine Question podcast from the University of Maine. If you stop the average person on the street or in an airport across the country or around the world for that matter, and ask them what they know about the state of Maine, lobsters might be one of the first things they reference. It's an iconic symbol for our state. It's also a lot of other things. A major industry for Maine, a tourist attraction, a proxy for changes in our climate, an indicator of how the environment is doing in general, and much more. The only time many of us interact with a lobster is when we're sitting down at the dinner table. Rick Wally has seen this creature from just about any angle you can think of. He's been to the seafloor where lobsters live. He's developed relationships with the people who fish for lobsters and has a unique perspective on this crustacean and how it's doing. His groundbreaking work that surveys populations of baby and juvenile lobsters has become a key tool in monitoring health and population trends. We spoke with Rick about his work and how this icon of Maine is faring these days. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. We appreciate it. Sure. What does the average person not know about lobsters that they might be surprised to learn? The time most of us interact with a lobster, it's on a plate with some drawn butter next to it, but this creature has in many ways been your life's work. So how do you see and think about this creature, the lobster? Yeah, I see lobsters through many different lenses, and it's really been exciting to work with this beast. I can think of it as sort of a portal into different fields in the area of uh, marine biology and ecology, being a scuba diver and being able to be down in its world and look at the world from its own terms has been really exciting over my career. It's also a portal into fisheries and coastal communities, you know, and it's just an amazing opportunity to get to know an entire uh, culture and business of the lobster fishery here on the, the coast of Maine and, and actually throughout uh, New England and Atlantic Canada, too, could, because we our work extends, extends from Rhode Island to Newfoundland. And, you know, uh, lobsters are sort of a, a poster child for climate change, too. There's so many changes that are going on uh, in terms of their distribution and abundance uh, that are that are related to a changing climate. They're they're declining in the southern end of the range, but increasing in the northern end of the range and places in between. And it's been really an interesting opportunity to witness that that change and actually document it in in our scientific reports and publications. I've asked this of marine scientists before, but of all the creatures in the ocean, you know, got whales and dolphins and sharks and all these glamorous species, but you chose the lobster. Was that a, an easy choice or did you, did you struggle to arrive at that? Well, I think lobsters have their own charisma. I mean, really, they're, you know, among the biggest crustaceans uh, out there, biggest invertebrates uh, in, our, in our backyard and rather conspicuous when you're 
when you're down there studying them and and uh, doing our sampling. Yeah, they're not warm and fuzzy, but they're certainly um, fascinating creatures to, to study. How is the lobster doing big picture? You talked about climate change. A lot of other factors are affecting its health and population. So, so how's it doing? Lobsters are are really doing fine. It's just they're, they're changing distribution is what's uh, got some people scratching their heads or a little bit worried. Um, you know, in southern New England, uh, we've definitely seen the consequences of a, of a warming climate. And, uh, it, you know, going back uh, already 20 years, um, you know, we were starting to see the, the adverse effects of excessive warming in places like Long Island Sound, which, uh, you know, experienced a, a mass die-off of lobsters and and uh, they haven't really recovered from that. And then to make matters worse, the, you know, shell disease became a factor in southern New England and has been sort of creeping uh, northward. But, you know, at the same time, um, the warming conditions have uh, favored lobsters in places that were sort of on the cold side of the lobster comfort zone, if you will, right? Places like <clears throat> eastern Maine, the Bay, Bay of Fundy, have historically been pretty chilly climate uh, for lobsters. There's certainly been a, a fishery there, but um, it's really been on, only over the past uh, a decade or so that it's really taken off. And uh, that's in part because of the, the warming. It's made uh, nursery habitats more favorable and conditions more favorable for larval development. And so, um, this is where we're, we're, we've been seeing the boom. And only over a distance of, you know, a few hundred miles uh, are we seeing this dramatic contrast. Maybe you could describe your work over the years. What are the big fundamental research questions that you're seeking answers to? You know, we're trying to get a better handle on the major drivers of uh, their distribution and abundance. We're ultimately interested in if we can use these tools and this understanding uh, in a forecasting mode and uh, as an early warning system for trends in the in the fisheries so um, and that involves um, you know getting a good handle on quantifying uh, the abundance of lobsters at different stages or different milestones in their in their life cycle you know for a long time we've had uh, uh, monitoring programs out there, of course, for lobster landings and um, and even the catches on commercial boats, um, and then uh, you know trawl surveys uh, came on board that that um, quantified both lobsters and the diverse group of uh, of ground fish that we have, but those still samples you know sort of the the larger adult forms, and we've really needed a better handle on on. Uh, what lobsters are experienced at their earliest life stage, you know, right, right when they're um, settling to the seabed. And so we developed that capability about 30 years ago when I was still working on my PhD and developed this, uh, you know, underwater vacuum cleaner uh, device. It's called a suction sampler that we use to sample lobsters right, uh, you know, in the little uh, hiding places between rocks and, and in those crevices. And and so we've developed a standardized approach to, to um, enumerate them. And that uh, started as a small scale 
monitoring program back in 1989 has now expanded from Rhode Island to Newfoundland over the years. But being able to keep a finger on the pulse of new babies entering the population every year has uh, given us uh, now a useful tool to follow those lobsters through time into the fishery and see whether strong year classes translate into strong landing, say, seven years later, which is about how much time it takes them to mature. How big are these guys when you're sampling them at the beginning stage of life? They're pretty small, right? They're pretty tiny. They're about as, as long as your thumbnail. So you've gone, as you mentioned, on dives and been where lobsters actually live. Can you take us there? What is that like? How do they behave when they're in the wild and how and where do they live? Lobsters live right from the immediate shoreline down to over, you know, 100 meters depth, 300 feet depth. And um, but, um, you know, as divers, we're pretty limited in the range of depth that that we can um, explore. We can use submarines to go deeper and, and use other other tools. But as a diver, to be down there and uh, really experience the world as they see it, so to speak. We're working in the, you know, on the rocky kelp beds of, of the Maine coast and New England coast. And, uh, you, you know, find lobsters hiding under crevices or in, in shelters. And to find these really little ones, as I said, we, we use the, uh, that, that underwater suction sampler to, to sample them efficiently. But if you're really careful... And, um, you know, don't blow a lot of bubbles and, um, and are careful. You can turn over one rock at a time and expose these little, little guys. And they look like little adult lobsters. And they'll, they'll wheel, their, wheel around into a defensive pose, just like the big ones do. Then uh, as you reach toward them, they'll scoot off into, a, into another uh, shelter. So it's... Um, it's hard to capture them by hand. Of course, the bigger guys are much bolder. Um, they're, they're more bold about um, being out of shelter, and you can often see them out of shelter, um, feeding on uh, mussels and uh, other invertebrates. They eat crabs and, and uh, uh, worms and, and so forth, and you can often find them out there. And of course, as divers, we see them in lobster traps, so we see see the lobsters before the, the harvester sees them and see how they're climbing over the bait and even interacting with each other, competing for the bait um, inside, the, inside the trap. They're pretty feisty creatures, right? They're not afraid to put up a fight? They're very feisty, and that starts from the beginning. Even those little guys will wheel around and, and put up their claws in defense if they're cornered. Um, but yeah, the big guys will take a piece out of you if, if you're not not careful it's important to hold them from you know behind the head so to speak to get the stay away from the claws the lobster catch is a growing part of the overall seafood catch for the state of maine is the seafood industry relying too much on lobsters to to keep it going the fishery um Im imposes a pressure on on the lobster population, but this is something that's been um, managed for many years and uh, we seem to have figured it out. And I have to credit the, the lobster industry for 
really taking the lead in that management. I mean, it was really them that, um, you know, started uh, conserving the egg-bearing females. And uh, they, we not only have a, a minimum size, but the industry has always advocated for imposing a maximum size because they recognize the value of those big females um, for their egg production abilities. Um, and even the prote- protection of females inside that uh, minimum and maximum size window. We've, for many years, had this program called V-notching. The, the harvesters put a, a notch in the one of the tail fins. If she's carrying eggs, they put one of those notches in. And then even after she's shed the eggs, um, if she has that mark, she's protected and uh, she cannot be harvested by law. Whereas the males, you know, are are subject to that gauntlet of harvesting inside that window. If a female has that V-notch, or of course, if she's at, uh, carrying eggs anyway, she's protected. So there are a number of conservation measures in, in place that, um, that really uh, protect this resource. You know, what other pressures are, are they under? The changing climate is uh, is um, making things uh, you know tougher to have a sustainable harvest in in southern New England. Um, we have uh, I mentioned shell shell disease as a uh, a factor that's of um, growing concern in in Maine um, in part because that it's gradually keep creeping northward with the warming climate. It's at a, in southern New England and places like Rhode Island and south of Cape Cod, it's at a prevalence level uh, at about 30 uh, plus percent and has been that way for a number of years. And it's definitely played a role in the collapse of the fishery down there. And there's acidification as well that uh, sort of affects their ability to make shells. Is that the, the effect of that? Ocean acidification is of concern in addition to the warming effects. The impacts of uh, acidification aren't quite as straightforward as the the temperature impacts, but there's some new research out there uh, indicating that, um, you know, the larvae and the juveniles are more vulnerable at at these um, low pHs that we're going to be seeing as, as things acidify. So among other things, you're the director of the Lobster Institute at the University of Maine. I take it you're not teaching lobsters to be smarter. So talk about the Institute and its mission. What, what are you all about there? The Lobster Institute's mission is to you know, foster collaboration and communication for a sustainable and profitable uh, lobster resource in, in both the U.S. and Canada. So we um, operate on both sides of the border. We play a big role in trying to uh, convene the industry sector with, uh, with science, scientists and um, start to address some of their top research concerns. You know, one of our flagship uh, events that has been uh, impacted recently by uh, by the the coronavirus is our U.S. Canada Lobster Town meeting, and that's just a, a great opportunity to bring uh, the industry together with um, with with scientists and policymakers to talk about talk out 
um, some of these thorny issues, whether it's whales or international trade, um, shell disease, to put it in a town hall fashion where we get, uh, you know, a couple brief presentations from experts in the field. And then there's a long Q&A session where um, where uh, all members of the audience, whether industry or otherwise, can um, start a conversation about the status of our understanding of these issues and um, how to address them. They've played a really important role in sort of kickstarting partnerships between scientists and, and the industry. So this uh, really points to one of our, our key efforts as the Institute is to try to um, maximize the engagement of humane faculty and students with stakeholders in, in this fishery, and again, on both sides of the border. You mentioned right whales, and I know there's some issues there in terms of entanglement and ropes. Are there any innovations in how lobsters are trapped and caught? I mean, some of this technology goes back hundreds of years, but are there some new things coming along? I know there's a project you have with the Advanced Manufacturing Center to look at some, some technologies there. This has been a, a longer standing uh, problem than um, some people may realize. Uh, we, we can go back more than a, a decade where so, whale safe uh, gear has been implemented in the fishery with, with breakaway links and so forth. But it's just become more acutely problematic with the, the increasing die-offs of, of right whales. And of course, the, the Marine Mammal Protection Act and the Endangered Species Act uh, come into play to mandate the, uh, the enforcement of, of these laws. So, you know, this is a creative uh, fishery and um, they're addressing the problem in a few different ways and Humane is, and, and others are, are working on, on different solutions. One of the um, key ways is to work with the breakaway strength of the rope, and that's where our um, our advanced manufacturing center is, is getting involved at UMaine. Um, some of our engineers are getting getting involved with designing uh, new ropes and testing their rope rope strength. There are either even some that are going out on a limb a bit um, with uh, with ropeless trap technology where uh, you know acoustic signals are sent are sent down to a, a a trap that has an inflatable buoy that's inflatable with co2 cartridges and then that deploy that deploys i'd say that's a you know a, a, a still quite a bit in the future and of course you you might imagine there's a lot of skepticism both in the uh in the industry, in the in the harvesting sector, as well as in the in the management sector, in terms of how to enforce, you know, the number of traps when you can't see them on the bottom, and it poses all sorts of other problems, too. And if you, especially if you're fishing, um, you know, multiple traps on a string, the risk of one harvester stepping on the other. Uh, with those strings is is heightened. So there are a lot of a lot of concerns about that, but still it's technology that's in the offing. And then of course, uh, you know, just thinking about ways of um, fishing more efficiently to sort of maximize the the value you're getting per unit effort of fishing, um, and uh, that that's a very complicated both uh, economic and social issue where, you know, 
fishermen, I think, generally recognize they could be more profitable if they fished fewer traps, but this is also about holding ground, uh, you know, on your fishing grounds and the, the, the territory, territorial dynamic of, of fishing and, uh, you know, these very long-standing traditions that are, that are difficult to, to break. So it's, it's not a simple, a simple fix. Nobody in the industry wants to harm any kind of whale uh, and most of all, right whales. So they're very much about um, being part of the solution. But, you know, at the same time, they don't want to go out of business doing it. So can you talk about markets for lobsters? Are they expanding? Are there new products? I've seen some news about skin creams and all kinds of other products out there that are come from uh, parts of lobsters. Are, are there some new products that are starting to be developed? We're going to see more than just a, a boiled lobster on a plate, perhaps? The biggest markets for lobster are for for the lobster itself to eat, right? And Maine's chief uh, export commodity is lobster. Um, we produce most of the lobster uh, in, in the nation. We produce about, uh, Maine produces about 80% of the U.S clawed lobsters supply. Trade, um, both domestically and internationally with Canada, as well as with Europe and China, has been booming. If you take the big picture, the you know, over the past decade, um, the big challenges have come when, um, you know, uh, uh, tariffs were imposed with China and then Europe um, that looks very promising that the tariffs with um, Europe are going to be uh, are, are going to be relaxed, so um, that uh, that avenue will will um, open up again. With the uh, coronavirus, that's created new challenges in in selling lobster, and um, and the industry's really had to rally and get creative and there are um, increasing uh, efforts to um, have processors making um, you know frozen products available or, or um, you know kits um, of various kinds available that you can buy in your grocery store um, you know not not just the live product but then as you mentioned there are these other derivatives from lobster especially lobster uh, shells that um, can go into anything from, um, you know, medical applications to skin creams and so forth. Um, when you think about the fact that, you know, most of the weight of the lobster is thrown away as shell, um, that, that's, uh, that in fact is a valuable product that um, can be used in a number of ways from those medical or cosmetic applications, or even just compost. And, um, you know, composting um, businesses uh, very much use uh, lobster waste, too. If we go beyond the science and the business, what does the lobster represent? Can you talk about the iconic place that it has in the state of Maine? And you must have, beyond that, stories about the creature itself or the people, the colorful people that inhabit this world. You know, the lobster is iconic in part because of its size and, uh, you know, I say charisma. And, uh, you know, it's an inherently interesting beast. 
Um, and of course, there's this entire coastal culture and um, fishery that uh, engages with it that has this, you know, these uh, amazing uh, stories and um, and history. It's a it's a wonderful example of how harvesters have um, led the way in um, stewardship of a of a marine resource. This is um, this is a fishery that's been going on for over 150 years, and uh, it's probably one of the very few, if only, fisheries that can brag that it's more productive now than it's ever been. So it's iconic from that perspective. And then, as I mentioned before. It's a poster child um, for for climate change. I mean, um, in it's, it's one of the most conspicuous species um, and fisheries that we have that's um, been affected by um, the warming climate, and we see it in, in its um, shifting range northward, where you know southern New England has sadly seen a, a collapse and even mass mortality in southern. In, uh, in Long Island Sound. But at the same time, uh, Newfoundland uh, is seeing booming numbers. They've never, they've, they're seeing landings they've never seen before. The stories change depending on where you are, but uh, in, from, from uh, Southern New England to Atlantic Canada, um, there, it's a, just a rich culture and interesting ecological uh, story. Some of the people that do this for a living, I imagine there are some characters that are pretty crusty or have a dry sense of humor. You've run across people like that, I bet. Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, uh, and I've been able to, I've, I've really been privileged to get to know a, a number of these characters, young, young and old, men and women. And I, I could tell you a few stories, but, you know, all told, I have to say, it's, it's just a a group of um, of people that are um, closely um, tied to the sea. They're naturalists who are out there every day. And as scientists, we really need to tap into that that intelligence, that 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 knowledge, and do a better job of it. And I think uh, a, a lot of us appreciate it and and really benefit from those collaborations. But you've got um, people like Norbert Lemieux from Cutler, who uh, you know is just a, an intrepid fisherman, uh, has been doing it all his life, following on his dad's heels, and his son son fishes, um, and and his grandson will probably too is coming up the ranks with his own little skiff. Um, but at the same time, you know, he's not done fishing once the weather gets cold. He switches over to boat building or outfitting hulls with, as, as lobster boats. And he's got some of the prettiest, most impressive uh, boats that he's built in, in, uh, in Cutler Harbor. Um, you go come down the coast a little further, um, you've got people like... Uh, uh, Genevieve McDonald from Stonington. She's a uh, you know, fisherman in her own right, and she calls herself a fisherman. She's got a family with a couple kids, and oh, on top of that, she's a state legislator as well. Um, so how she manages all that, I'll I'll never guess. But this is a hardworking uh, group of people that I've been hugely privileged to get to know and work with. 
Now, this question comes a little bit out of left field, but somebody told me to ask it, and I was curious about it as well. You probably get questions about, in very rare occasions, someone traps a blue lobster or other very rare colorings. How rare is that, and how does that happen? The rare blue lobster, um, we get questions about them all the time. They're definitely rare. They're probably a few in a million we don't have real good numbers on that. You'd think we would um, from all the data that uh, Maine DMR collects on on uh, lobsters and measurements they take and so forth, and they're probably there, but I've never actually seen the numbers reported. But let's say a few in, few in a million. And uh, yeah, it's a, a rare mutation that um, causes the lobster to produce uh, um, more protein than usual um, that goes into the the sh- into the shell. The pigment that causes the the red is called um, astaxanthin, and uh, you know it, it ranges from sort of a rel- red to yellow color. Um, but there's another this other protein called uh, crustocyanin, and uh, it uh, masks that that uh, astaxanthin until it's cooked, until the animal's cooked. That, uh, that crustocyanin is temperature sensitive, whereas the astaxanthin is not. So the red pigment is exposed once, uh, uh, once the animal's cooked. And, um, and so that's, so it's a, essentially a, a mutation and it, you know, comes in various strengths, but, uh, you know, that brilliant blue color doesn't mean the red's not there. It's just being masked. So finally, we ask this of a lot of our guests, no matter what subject or discipline they are into, but what does the future look like? Take us out five or 10 years. What's the future for this creature, for this industry here in the state of Maine? You know, there are probably some doomsday sayers out there, but really uh, for the Gulf of Maine, things out several decades are are looking um, reasonably good. And that's in, in part uh, because of the the cold waters we have in the Gulf of Maine, especially to the north and, and, and east toward, as we get closer to the Bay of Fundy. We're just coming into the comfort zone from the the cold end in the, those areas. And those areas stand to continue to produce large amounts of lobsters. Now, as we get further south and to the west, closer to Massachusetts, Cape Cod Bay, and so forth, there we may be seeing the adverse effects of, of warming and, uh, and more shell disease, um, higher mortality rates. Um, one of the big concerns is... Um, areas that um, where the oxygen level is becomes depleted during the summer that's called hypoxia and we need to need to be concerned about those those places that's probably what happened in long island sound and uh, and there are places like boston harbor cape cod bay where those places can uh, can can see hypoxia Um, at the same time you know you can think this is think of this as sort of a a cresting wave that's been advancing northward 
Canadian waters are likely to be seeing better production as we get into the future. But even there, places uh, like uh, Northumberland Strait, between PEI and uh, Nova Scotia shore, it's sort of Canada's Long Island Sound in that it gets very warm during the summer. Even though it's historically frozen over in the winter, it uh, gets very warm and hypoxic during the summer at times. And, uh, and so, you know, even Canada is not escaping the impacts of climate change uh, entirely. Lobsters aren't going away anytime soon. Their center of gravity is shifting northward, though. One final question I, I, I should de- I definitely think to ask whenever we have something that involves uh, things you can eat. But what, what's your favorite way to eat lobster? Any, any recipes you'd care to share other than the, other than the traditional? You know, um, just the plain old traditional or sometimes I, you know, like it, uh, you know, just a plain old lobster roll. You know, the, the, you got to have the right bread, butter. But, you know, I've always thought of uh, lobster as a great way to get butter to your mouth, too. <laughs> All right. We'll keep that in mind. Listen, thanks so much for taking the time. Very interesting. Sure thing, Ron. There is a lot of research and projects involving lobsters going on at UMaine. If you're interested in finding out more, head to umaine.edu and search for the Lobster Institute. It's a gathering point for all research happening at UMaine and beyond, as well as projects and collaborations happening in the fishing community. That's it for this episode, the final one in Season 3 of The Main Question. But we'll be back after a short break for the holidays. Lots of fascinating stories to explore on the research happening at UMaine and the people who do it. In the meantime, you can find any of our 37 episodes on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Send us your thoughts or comments at mainquestion at main.edu. This is Ron Luznet. We'll catch you next time around on The Main Question.